Hi, welcome to JP Morgan TV. I'm Tom Salopek from Cross Asset Strategy. I'm joined by my colleagues, Fabio Bassi, head of uh, international rate strategy, Prabhav Badani from Global Equities Strategy, and Patrick Locke from FX Strategy. Welcome all to the program. We're talking about high for long, how it impacts our, our respective asset classes. And I don't want to steal the punchline of the video, but I think uh, in a lot of cases, the, what we're finding is that this high for long phenomenon is, is increasing our conviction on, on our, our trades we have on right now that we're recommending. So let's start with, with, with Fabio right now. Uh, you, know, you know, we've just come off the back of a couple different central bank meetings and we get the sense that we're done. But at the same time, you know, in terms of the cutting we're expecting last year, we're seeing a probably less cutting than what the market was originally expecting. So what do you think is the, the logic for central banks right now? And, and what does it mean to you on your side in terms of your, your view on, on trading DM rates? Hi, Tom, and thank you for having me here today. I think that most of uh, DM central bank, in my view now, are, very, uh, are facing very similar consideration. Rates are on the restrictive side after the sharp tightening that they deliver over a short period of time. Inflation is actually moving lower across jurisdiction, but the ability and the effectiveness of reaching the target is still not warranted. So clearly in this world, uh, I think it's difficult and dangerous for central bank to declare victory too early because uh, that would uh, be particularly dangerous. So they have a cautious, data-dependent, risk-manager approach. And I think that is based on three considerations. First, uh, the M central bank uh, have faced an inflation shock that they haven't seen in decades. And therefore, they don't want to be complacent. The experience from the 70s actually teaches that cutting rates too early could actually be dangerous. Second, in a world where inflation prints are still on the high side, I think that the rhetoric of central bank is critical in holding inflation expectation anchored. And they can only be if there is a message of higher for longer. And third, is that at the time where central banks are actually going to be confident about reaching the inflation target, then the rate market will read that basically as a green light for a more aggressive easing. That is going to be priced in forward space, uh, and that is going to ease uh, financial, forward financial conditions that are going to challenge the inflation partner. So between now and the rest of the year, I believe that the narrative is going to remain for rates and old. We really risk probably scale, uh, skewed more selectively for a fire dart tightening rather than an immediate easing. So what does it mean for DM rates? Uh, we believe that it is important to start thinking about idiosyncratic factor. The macro reaction that we have seen uh, in the so far delivered tightening is actually not homogeneous, and that should actually drive our strategy outlook. You know, specifically, if we talk about the growth in the third quarter, in US, uh, our economists are saying that we are running around 3.5%, whereas in Euro, we are actually close to the stagnation. And that is the reason why we continue to believe that euro rates are probably the best place across the end to be positioned for the end of the cycle. So in euro, we have been running long duration position in the belly of the German curve. We are long five year, we are receiving one year rate, we are forward. And we believe that late 2025 implied OAS yield around 285 are still in restrictive territory, clearly not consistent with the ECB and also with our projection, then inflation will be back to target by that point. So clearly there is a risk that inflation is sticky. We don't want to be complacent about that. But the implicit assumption that we have in our duration outlook is that if you're sitting here in early 2024 and the pattern of the inflation decline is too slow, our view would be that the ECB at that point would be keen to provide additional tightening, reinforcing the effectiveness of monetary policy. 
So given the macro resilience and the are for longer na uh, narrative, we also make sense uh, uh, to basically edge some uh, of our long du uh, duration position by basically being positioned for less easing in the first six months of 2024 with the idea that the view that is more likely to be backloaded. In this space, for example, in Europe, we have a recommendation for some disinversion between December 23 and June 24, as we believe that the bar for DM central bank to cut in the first half of the year remains quite high. Similarly, just briefly on UK, we also retain a bullish bias in the one-year rate we are forward, but we express that bullish bias more by a money market flattering on the Sonia curve between March 24 and March 25. Thanks, Fabio. Let's turn a sec to uh, to Prabhav and equities. So equities has started the year pretty well, of course, pricing in kind of a Goldilocks soft landing environment, pretty high PE ratios. And now it seems like the market's rolling over and, and coming to reality in terms of processing higher for longer, what it means in terms of interest expense and, and you know, how those inflation expectations, which have been so helpful in the post-COVID period in, in terms of pricing power, now those are coming back down to earth. So, so putting that all together, what, what does this mean in terms of the picture for, for earnings growth and margins? Thanks, uh, thanks, Tom. Um, so as far as the PPIs or the inflation uh, forwards, uh, you know, those are concerned, they tend to have a very strong positive correlation with profitability and margins. Uh, that's been the historical trend. And I don't think uh, it's gonna deviate from that. The fact that PPIs are on the downtrend, that's actually a negative uh, you know, news for the margin story. And if you look at margins, for example, for Europe, we are at you know 330 basis points above where we were back in 2019. So you were almost in supercharged territory uh, from a margins perspective. That was largely driven by strong pricing power. Um, corporates had the ability to pass on costs because the consumer was in a position to absorb them. Uh, that, in our opinion, should be faded. Um, and then when you think of the overall top line growth, that was again held because of the high inflationary pressures. If those are fading, then the overall profitability outlook, that's going to be uh, more challenged. Um, and, and, you know, going back to this idea of higher for longer, that again is something that uh, eats into the margin story because, you know, corporates, they haven't really been taxed. The impact of the rate hikes, it takes time to flow through to the economy. And I think we are at a stage when it's starting to hit. Um, so both of these factors combined, the fact that your PPIs are on the downtrend and your, uh, you know, um, the rate environment is going to remain sticky at an elevated level. Uh, they, both of these will be a problem. On top of that, when you look at the supply versus the demand side dynamics for corporate profitability, you have you know certain components of the cost uh, you know, bucket, which are actually moving in the wrong direction. Oil prices are going up, commodity prices are remaining high, wage pressures uh, continue to you know uh, build, uh, all of which impacts uh, the cost side of things. While at the you know, pricing end, you have corporates, especially in sectors like chemicals, et cetera, who are already struggling to price things uh, the way they were six or 12 months back. Uh, so we think that the margins outlook will look, uh, look bleaker going forward. And in our framework, margins is something that is a leading indicator for your hiring intentions. That's a leading indicator for your CapEx. Essentially, that has uh, connotations, that has implications for the broader cycle itself. Um, so, you know, sorry to be the bearer of bad news here, but uh, in our, uh, you know, uh, in our books, I think the margin story is finished. It's uh, starting to head in the wrong direction. Um, there are two other uh, aspects to consider here when you're looking at uh, this idea of higher for longer. Uh, one, you know, high yields by themselves uh, are not a problem for markets. You know, historically, the relationship between 
uh, bond yields and equities has been positive. The question is at what level it flips. And I think we are at a level where equities are uh, going to be more uncomfortable. In fact, uh, historically, yields and cyclicals, they've had a very strong positive correlation. That correlation is starting to break down. If you look at uh, markets in the last couple of months, cyclicals have been underperforming even if bond, uh, bond yields are making a new high. Um, the reason for that uh, disconnection is the re you know essentially what's driving the yields higher. It's not because growth is uh, doing much better. It is because uh, there are concerns about what the central banks might do. There are concerns about you know, inflation being actually you know, less of, uh, or the pace at which inflation comes down. That's starting to stabilize. Oil prices have gone up 30% in the last uh, you know couple of months. So all of these factors are bad news as far as equities are concerned. Um, we also think that this higher for longer environment will mean yield curve remains inverted, which is a problem for your financials and the broader cyclicality. Uh, and finally, um, higher for longer also means dollar remains bid. And what do you buy when the dollar goes up? It's the defensives. It's your pharma. It's your uh, you know safe haven sectors. Um, so that's how we are positioned in our equity portfolio. Thanks, Prabhav. Let's turn to Patrick in, in uh, FX. Post the hiking cycle, you know, hopefully we have better rate differentials and better carry dispersion to, to play. Maybe you can touch on what higher for longer does to the to the rate differential picture. Does it reinforce your views? Does it cancel out your views? So what's the update, update there, Patrick? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, I think there's a, a range of things to consider here, I think. But the bottom line is basically on net, they tend to be dollar positive and kind of reinforce our, our constructive view there. Uh, to your point on on spreads and differentials, I mean, it is interesting to think that if all central banks are, are coming to an end or a pause uh, in synchronized fashion, that yields could effectively stabilize across the boards, in which case you don't get much volatility in rate differentials per se. And that's obviously a a very common driver of FX. So that would perhaps suggest that FX volatility is, you know, maybe relatively limited. Um, on the other hand, if you continue to have this slow grind higher, uh, particularly led by U.S. rates, um, I do still think that's kind of a, a dollar positive force, even if spreads aren't widening all that much. Um, you look, for example, we have, you know, U.S. yields making new highs, but European yields also making new highs kind of further out the curve. Nevertheless, this continues to be viewed as a, a strongly dollar positive environment, perhaps led by the, the growth backdrop in the U.S., um, but also, I think, just recognition that uh, the U.S. and the U.S. dollar are a better place to digest uh, higher yields for longer. Um, I would also note that on the back of, you know, last week's suite of central bank meetings, um, you know, the way that the market viewed kind of the Fed's, uh, you know, the new dots in the SEP forecast, particularly marking down the unemployment rate to a peak of 4.1 from 4.5 previously, and that's relative to Nehru around 4% for their estimates, um, that, you know, further out the curve that perhaps we need to kind of continue to rethink the amount of easing that is priced in. Um, and so maybe terminals not being repriced all that much higher on the U.S. side, but you have to juxtapose that as well against the BOE and the ECB, which, you know, in our view, were, were more dovish in the Fed, um, and which perhaps gives you a little bit more of that rate widening differential, perhaps led more by European currencies, if the Fed really is truly locked in and, and not going to ease, uh, you know, very much from here. So that's a dollar positive support um, as well. Two other channels that I would just mention from our space in the high for long conversation, um, as you suggested, one is obviously carry. Uh, carry continues to be the top performing strategy in our space uh, year to date. 
at least in the G10 space, the dollar is a high yielding currency. Um, and then if you look further out and abroad in EMFX, um, there's still some you know reasonably attractive yield on offer there, even though the, the conversation has in some places shifted more towards easing cycles uh, like in LATAM. But I think you can certainly select um, some high quality fundamental plays with high yield, things like you know Mexico, for example, um, and you know that with the dollar, I think those are still very reasonable plays, um, and I think Kerry can kind of continue to get support um, in this kind of volatility environment. And then, last thing I, I'll say is that um, you know, again, since FX is a relative asset class, we need to think about how high yields are being digested, you know, across different economies, and and we make the point that it's it's not really um, all that homogenous. Um, so obviously, a kind of a hallmark of U.S. resilience so far um, has been some people attribute that to the, the nature of the U.S. mortgage market. It's long term. It's fixed rate. But that's absolutely not the case across the rest of G10. Um, certain places like Australia have a very high degree of variable rate mortgages. Uh, other places like Canada have fixed rate mortgages, but those that reset every five years. Um, so you don't get that same kind of ongoing um, benefit from locked in lower yields in some of the you know some of these consumer areas. Um, and so I think in that case, that certainly will impact transmission to the consumer over time, um, and by extension, how the central banks respond. And I think that is all very germane to how we think about FX. And and once again, I think that um, kind of asymmetrically favors the dollar. So top to bottom, um, the high for long, I do think favors the dollar quite resiliently here. Thanks, Patrick. Let's turn back to Fabio. We have growth risk a little bit more in focus in Europe, obviously. So what does that mean to you in terms of end of cycle trades, uh, you know, either carry trades or short vol on the back of, you know, end of the hiking cycles? And uh, you know, so, so basically, what are the opportunities across DM rates? Thank you, Tom. Well, at the, the end of the cycling cycle has been typically the green light for a curve steepening trade. Volatility needs to shift at the short end uh, uh, from the short and to the belly of the curve uh, market, we start pricing some easing over the medium term, and that is basically going to provide some uh, bull steepening dynamic. In Euro, the 1030s offset curve has already started to disinvert quite aggressively. It went from a level of negative 80 to around negative 30 on the swap curve, uh, a dynamic that in our view can continue. When I look at the big picture, I think that there are three themes uh, in our view for Euro. Uh, uh, rates in terms of buyer for longer. One is clearly a long carry and spread product. The second is a short vol that we have decent conviction on. And then the third is probably a volatility curve steepener as the volatility, as I said, will move away from the short, from the short end of the curve more into the uh, belly of the curve. So and it's been an all for a long time. It's expected, as I said, to be a factor that is going to support the spread product. Uh, so in Europe, we like intra-immune tritener. And we have clearly a strong preference for country in the core space, uh, like France and Belgium. We are recommending long versus Germany. And also we are long in um, EU paper versus drop. The outlook for uh, on Interimio is, uh, you know, at the moment we are neutral on Italy. Uh, we have been underweight cross-market versus Greece uh, as a sort of relative value trade. More recently, we have seen uh, interest from some investor in reinitiating short BTP position. On the back of the same argument that we had at the beginning of the year, supply, QT, political risk, uh, we stay neutral for the time being. Next week, the focus is going to be on the retail BTP valore, 
which could find decent retail demand, probably reducing some uh, short-term pressure. The interesting point is on QT. Our view remains that the bar for ECB to stop the PEP investment is actually quite high, and therefore we don't find the uh, intra-EMU wideners as attractive at this level. On the political front, uh, in Italy, we may expect some noise around the budget, but I find difficult to have a confrontational approach with Europe ahead of the next round of the next-gen EU grants that are going to arrive by the end of the year, also with the upcoming reform of stability and growth pack on the table. Uh, moving to Vol, I think that in the euro area, we started about a month before the last ECB meeting to recommend the short volatility in European rates in the top left of the surface. Uh, the ECB meeting clearly helped that narrative. Uh, one of the pushback that you get from clients is that a lot has been already priced uh, uh, because uh, you know we are actually now close to the year-to-date uh, lows in terms of Vol. But we still believe that there is some room to go. So to give you some level, when recommended the short vol in, uh, in Europe, uh, uh, from month to year was trading around 6.5 basis point a day. You know, uh, now the, the money vol has declined to about uh, low 5, 5.1, 5.2. We believe that the year-end target should be lower around 4.5. So we are happy to keep uh, this uh, short uh, volatility theme as uh, end of cycle trade as a way to pick up carry. And we also believe, as I said, that the volatility of the curve should uh, shift uh, in the belly uh, with uh, the five-year and 10-year leading the move, both in a rally and in a sell-off. So we are actually combining the short vol at the short end with uh, also vol steepening view. So to give you a very quick answer to your question, yes, uh, we believe uh, that we see selective opportunity coming from the themes of uh, higher for longer. And this, as I said, is basically uh, um, the long in uh, intra-immune spread product, uh, short vol and volatility steepeners. Hey, thanks, Fabio. Let's let's turn to Prabhav now. What do you think is most exposed to, to higher for longer? Which which uh, sectors are most sensitive? And then also, in addition to talking about risks, maybe you could talk a bit about things that you are um, bullish about. I mean, I know you guys like mining and energy, and maybe touch on the closing your real estate underweight. Sure. Um, so in terms of sectors uh, where, let's say, you know, margins could come under pressure, uh, I think it's the consumer cyclicals, which probably are the most exposed. Um, you know, even sectors like food and general retail, I would add to that list. Um, airlines, luxury, sporting goods, all of them. Construction materials, even. Um, industrials and chemicals. Basically, all of the global cyclicality, uh, that is, in my opinion, quite vulnerable. At the same time, uh, when you look at sectors which haven't quite benefited from this, uh, you know, surge, um, sectors like pharma, staples, uh, utilities, telecoms, more of the defensives, uh, they, they should do okay. Uh, now, when it comes to our portfolio allocation, we have a bit of a barbell approach. We have all of these defensives which are overweights in our portfolio, and then we also like commodities. Uh, with commodities, I would like to make a distinction between energy and uh, mining. Mining is something that we think would tactically work in the near term, but it's not something that we would like to be engaged in from a medium-term perspective. Energy, on the other hand, it has price support because OPEC has been exhibiting very price-sensitive behavior. Uh, we don't think uh, there is an imminent need for them to change that. So oil price probably remains in, uh, remains in the range of 85 to $100, uh, which is quite uh, a positive boost for energy equities because there, you know, uh, there's mark-to-market -market upgrades for earnings for these companies for this year and next year. So potentially they could actually uh, you know, counter some of the negativity we have 
on the uh, overall market earning story um, so they, they that, that's one sector energy is one sector that we have as an overweight in our portfolio uh, you're right we recently upgraded real estate as well now theoretically real estate is uh, a sector which is you know yield sensitive it's something that does well when yields are moving lower and and we do think that uh, bond yields will not move much higher from current levels so even if central bank policy remains uh, or stagnates around current levels uh, bulk of the move up in yields is done so that could be uh, something that provides some respite to the sector uh, on top of that the sector from a fundamental perspective is actually doing okay if you look at uh, the rental realizations uh, the rental growth is actually quite decent for the sector um, most of the sub industries within the sector um are doing okay you have all these headlines around cre etc which uh is more of an issue in the us and maybe some parts of sweden uh but most of uh, the european players they are reporting strong numbers you have the german home builders who are reporting you know very strong uh you know uh, operating data uh, you have uh, you know balance sheets which have improved dramatically and the investment community is not really giving the sector credibility uh, to all of these uh, you know improvements so i think real estate could be a, a interesting sector to uh, look at we upgraded from underweight to neutral so we are not there uh, we're not pushing it all the way to overweight yet uh, because we think you know this this overhang of yields needs to be absorbed completely before uh, we get there Thanks, Prabhav. Let's turn to Patrick now. Similar question for you about, you know, what do you think is most at risk from uh, from higher for longer? I mean, I just mentioned that, you know, I mean, just a general point. I mean, when when you buy a put option, you pay for you pay for protection, and uh, and you know, in the case of the dollar, you you may have positive carry and at the same time defensive qualities from the, the dollar. It seems like there's a lot of currencies that are in the exact opposite situation, meaning that you know the carry is not attractive and they've got growth risk. So, so maybe you can touch on which which of these uh, uh, currencies you think are most exposed to the to the higher for longer. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, that's definitely one channel. Um, carry is going to be an issue for places like Euro. Obviously, the U.S. on top of the li- things you just listed is also running at a three and a half percent growth rate right now, whereas Europe is uh, essentially stagnating according to the latest surveys. Um, that's certainly not you know a situation where you want to be caught. Um, you know paying that that negative carry there. So um, generally speaking, we continue to say that, you know, we have an aversion to, to the low yielders in this kind of environment. Obviously, the one that stands out most of all um, is dollar yen. If you look at what dollar yen has done over the last two years, um, 95% of dollar yen um, can be explained by variance in the, in the rate differential between treasuries and JGBs, and obviously most of that is driven by the Treasury side. So to the extent that U.S. yields really do stay higher for longer, that's going to continue to anchor dollar-yen up around these levels, in my view. Um, and that's obviously one of the worst cases of negative carry you can get in the G10 space if you're trying to uh, if you're trying to get long yen. So um, that's essentially, I think, the best play in our space in terms of a carry standpoint. Um, but then another angle that, you know, I, something I referred to earlier is the housing vulnerabilities. And we're also wary of cyclical currencies that have high degrees of leverage and also high and rising debt servicing costs. And a couple do stand out um, there. Uh, first is Sweden. It's certainly a highly leveraged economy. It's also probably had the most in terms of real estate wobbles so far uh, this year. And we've we've cited several times where it's become increasingly obvious that uh, dollar stocky 
for Eurostock, he has shown um, pretty evident risk premium that is well correlated with uh, with housing pressure. So to the extent that high for long kind of exacerbates these questions around real estate, um, then that's you know a good potential short opportunity. Um, we have that in our portfolio. Um, and then New Zealand is another one. Um, you know, essentially they were quick in the hiking process and the way the mortgage market works there is that there's going to be continued cumulative financial conditioning tightening at least through the end of this year. And that does quite a bit of work for the RBNZ itself. Um, so much so that the RBNZ has started to show a little bit of, um, a little bit of, you know, concern about how much more tightening is it even in the pipeline, even without hiking. Um, and so that's one reason why we ultimately expect uh, the RBNZ to be one of the first central banks in the G10 space to actually cut in the first quarter of next year because of this kind of delayed and, and lagged effect from the housing market. So again, um, highly levered economies, high debt servicing costs, um, and housing markets that are perhaps a little bit more responsive uh, to interest rate hikes than, than what the US, U.S. has shown. Um, and again, those all, to your point, have cyclical orientations, whereas a dollar is anti-cyclical and pro-carry. So a nice, certainly a nice hedge in that regard. One more quick question for you, Patrick, one that I think you're particularly interested in. Do you think the commodity currencies have, have kept up with oil? I, I know you cover CAD. Yeah, no, it's a good and it's an interesting question. Um, you can parse it a lot of different ways. Um, traditionally, we would look at something like dollar CAD as a proxy you know, for oil. And from the better part of, say, 2007 until maybe 2020, that level's anchor from oil largely held. Um, but in the last two years, especially when oil went up to 130, 140 last year, that correlation essentially broke down. Um, Essentially, that would have suggested dollar cat around parity, whereas dollar cat actually moved a little bit higher, uh, not lower, which is what you would expect with with stronger oil. And we can explain that um, through a couple ways. First is that, you know, over time, especially since the oil price collapse uh, induced by shale in 2014-15, some of these economies have kind of deleveraged um, from the ONG space uh, in their economies. So, um, you know, investment, employment, and in oil and gas in Canada is a smaller footprint than what it was uh, 10 years ago. So that suggests, you know, less pass-through in macroeconomic terms and central bank uh, monetary policy through these currencies. Um, but the reality is that also, I think, bigger picture, we've seen kind of a paradigm shift, whereas, you know, 10, 15 years ago, oil was driven higher due in part to strong China growth um, and strong demand there. Whereas now, obviously, the last 18 months, much of the effect has been, um, you know, supply driven. And that's an interesting kind of conundrum for, for cyclical uh, commodity linked currencies, because, yes, it's better terms of trade. Yes, it's higher national income. Uh, but at the same time, these kind of energy supply shocks are a negative for global growth. Um, typically, the best case scenario for a commodity currency is you know, strong commodity prices, but strong global growth. And now you've got these two kind of going opposite directions. Um, so it's a little bit more of a more of a question mark for how these currencies are responding. Um, so in that case, it, it makes sense that just because oil's higher doesn't mean you can automatically sell dollar CAD like you used to. The way we essentially prefer to play it at this point is to be long commodity exporters on the crosses. Um, so for example, we're long CAD against both uh, euro and sterling, which, you know, uh, to some degrees 
are more energy import intensive um, and so are more likely to take the brunt of those higher prices than say you know the dollar leg um, so the paradigm has shifted a little bit still definitely offers offers opportunities in our view i think you just have to be a little bit more tactical uh in the crosses that you play understood thank you patrick thank you fabio thank you for bob and thank you all for tuning into jp morgan tv